Now we'll get there. Thank you. I'm like seeing spots. All right. Um, it's been said, listen carefully. This is a really cool section of scripture, guys, by the way. I'm super excited to be able to share with you um, what is in it and what God's showing me. But listen to this because it's been said that prophecy should motivate us to sobriety. And, and obviously we don't want to be, be drunks. That's not what it's, what it's talking about But when, when that's mentioned. It's, it's this idea of how we live. Prophecy should motivate us to sobriety, to live soberly with expectancy. Okay, And this is done, as the scripture tells us, there's many ways to do it, and I've kind of compiled it together. Scripture tells us that, that we can live slow, soberly, we can live expectantly by, number one, being watchful in our prayers. And I think that's a really cool thing to keep in mind when Scripture puts it like that, because I think in our prayer life we go about it, whether it's for our meals or for our needs or for families and friends, and, 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 um, I, and making requests known to God, but it's kind of like we spoke it and forgot about it. We made it known to God and forgot about it, and God doesn't forget about it, but in the forgetting of it, we, we, we forget, we're not expecting in our prayer life. And God, God wants us to come to him as a good father, make our requests known, and then expect that he's going to answer. And at the very least, what that means is we at least need to have our ears open so we're listening to his response to us. But then not only that, this being watchful in our prayers is meaning looking to see God's hand moving here in the land of the living as he answers our prayers. So in regards to prophecy, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning to some degree, is, is it should cause us to be watchful in our prayers. It should cause us to be doing kingdom of heaven work. And we kind of talked about that as we were in the beginning of this chapter about building God's kingdom and, and, and looking forward to the kingdom that's coming and not our own kingdom. In addition to that, we need to be exercising self-control. Living soberly, living expectantly, exercising self-control, preparing our minds for action. And, and, and what that means is as we go through our day after we've spent time with the Lord, are we then looking for opportunities to be a servant, to be his servant, preparing our mind for action, to take action. You know, there's, we all do it in, in regards to earthly things. We get up in the morning, we look about our day in our mind, and we, we make a list, maybe actually or mentally, and we get prepared thinking, how am I going to take action with what I need to do today? We lay it out. We're preparing our minds for action. Well, even more so, spiritually speaking, in regards to um, what God would have us be doing. And prophecy should cause us to prepare our minds for actions. Um, and lastly, it, uh, prophecy in regards to causing us to live soberly and with expectancy, it should cause us to set our hope fully on the grace of God that will be given to us when Jesus returns. Amen? And, and this sober-minded, expectant way of living that prophecy should motivate us into is never truer in regards to the prophecies about the rapture of the church and Jesus' return. And when we read about these prophetic things in, in many New Testament passages, and if you're taking notes, you can jot these down, like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, you know, in those passages, what speak about Jesus' return and speak about the, the rapture of the church, these things that we're called to live, or these ways that, that, we are, that I've mentioned already on how we're called to live, is what those passages of scriptures admonish us to do to live in this way. And this call by God to live soberly, to live ex with expectancy, as if, think about this, as if today could be the day that Jesus will return. 
it, 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 it rests in the fact, this, this call to live soberly, this call to live expectantly, as if today's the day that Jesus could return, rests in the fact that we don't know when he's coming. We don't know when he's coming back. <laughs> in fact, the Bible makes it very clear when it tells us in Matthew chapter 25 by Jesus' own words that no one knows the day or even the hour of his return. But even though we do not know the exact day or the hour, the Bible tells us that we can know for certain that, listen, we can know for certain this. We can know that if we're not watching, if we're not living expectantly, you know what then? Jesus will come back at a time when we do not expect it. And this is the point that Jesus is now directing his disciples to in this next chapter where we have this parable of the faithful and the evil servant which is recorded in the final verses of, 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 of Luke chapter 12. Now, real quick, when we ended last week, we concluded with verse 34. You can look there where Jesus said, chapter 12, verse 34, where Jesus said to his disciples, this is a transitional verse. It's the fulcrum between the, the, the teeter-totter, if you will, of where we were and where we are going. And with this, with this, this message where Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And with that, that statement, really it's a profound statement, but with that statement he concluded his warnings, there was multiple warnings. This warning to take heed and beware of covetousness and to beware of greed, to not lay up treasures for ourselves in this life and, and not to worry about the basic needs such as food and clothing. For God loves us. We even sung about that and looked at that in, in our time of worship and, and values us. And we know that he'll provide for all of our needs. And so on one side of the fulcrum we have this. And with this transitional verse where Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In saying that, we get this idea or this next, next point that, that's being connected, this dot that we're connecting together, that we should ultimately seek the kingdom of God right, with that knowledge, and look to store up treasures in heaven that'll last for all eternity. So when Jesus said to us and to his disciples, when he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, we see that he was ultimately given a measure of by what we in our own lives can, can really determine what is important. I've heard, I heard someone say once, you know, go, we don't, most of us don't reconcile our checkbooks the way that our parents did, perhaps, you know, and maybe some of you still do, where you got the, the check registry and you write everyone in and, and you, you go down and you subtract. I, 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 we use computers now. If you're my kids, you don't even keep track. They don't even reconcile. They just look on their electronic phones and, and see their banks, if they got any money in there, and they just think if they got money in there, they can spend it. And I try to tell them, doesn't work like that. But, um, that I, I mentioned that because if you look at your registry of what you spent your money on, you can get a good idea of what's important to you, right? I like to go out. I like food. I like good food. And, and, and if you look in my registry, you're going to see some restaurants that I like to go and eat at. It's important to me. And, 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 but even more so should be things in there about the kingdom of God. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also, you know. And we talked about last week um, about, you know, this call to tithe, you know, or tithing to the church and to God's kingdom. But, but I'll mention that because I want to get on this thing about tithe. I mentioned it because Jesus also spoke to the Pharisees and he said it's, it's about alms as well. In other words, when God, when God makes a need known to us, 
and, and where we're looking to bless those around us because we've been blessed by him. There sh- that should be reflected also in something that's come out of our wallet. Where our treasure is, there our heart is. Where is your heart? Is your heart for God? Is your heart for God's kingdom? Is your heart for God's people? Is your heart for God's work? It should be reflected in, in how we, we spend not only our money, but our time. You know, your registry of your time. What is your time devoted to? Who's it given over to? What are you doing with it? And like I was saying, you know, he was shifting with this verse, not only identifying what was important, given a measure for us by what we in our own lives can really identify what is important as we assess where is our treasure, where is our heart. But Jesus, he was also shifting this emphasis from, from being worried about the present to being watchful about the future and concerned about the eternal. That's the other side of this, this teeter-totter fulcrum off of this verse. And, and I like, and like I was saying last week when we began this chapter, all of these things that Jesus is speaking about here, they're connected together. Listen, this is how. If you were here for last week's study, you'll see it. This is how. For one of the best ways in our own lives to conquer hypocrisy, one of the best ways for us to conquer covetousness and to, and to, to avoid being, to, to worrying about this life is to be looking and living expectantly for Jesus' return. I don't know how many times I've had problems in my life, you know, whether it's sin issue or, or external things, and I've been comforted, encouraged, and motivated by this one thought, Jesus could come back today. Do I really want him to see me living this way? Do I really want to be able to give an account for this? You know, do I, how, what do I want to be doing when I'm raptured? I want to be standing behind this thing here teaching, because that's going to look good, right? <laughs> It's, it's some, and and it's, not, it's not that we're saved by works, but you know, I want, I want my Father in heaven to be pleased with the things that he finds me doing when he comes back. And that's the awesome thing about prophecy. That's the awesome thing about living expectantly for Jesus' return, you know, because when we're living in the future tense, okay, not in the temporal, we're so temporal-minded. We live here in this temporal place, but we're called to be Eternally minded, not earthly minded. And, and when we're living in the future tense with the eternal on our mind, you know, it is very difficult for the things of this world to ensnare us. So Jesus went on to say here in verse 35, look, he said, he said let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes, he knocks, they may be open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in in the second watch, or come in in the third watch, again, speaking of the unexpectancy of the master's return, and yet still find them so, meaning his servants prepared, ready to answer the door, ready to to wait on their master. He said, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also... Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. And Father, I pray that you would teach us by your Spirit this morning through your Word as we are again um, having our attention, our thoughts, our minds, our hearts placed on 
the knowledge and understanding of your return. So God, make your will known to us through your word. Teach us and speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, if we look at, let's, let's start at the end of what we just read before we go back to the beginning of what we read. Because in verse 40, Jesus clearly says here that these words about the servant, which we're reading about being ready and, and waiting for his master's return, is, is an example for us, right? He clearly says this is an example for his disciples to see and understand our need to be prepared for the Son of Man's return, who will also come at an hour that we do not expect. And, and just for, for knowledge's sake, this, this, this title of the Son of Man, I can tell you that it's, just, it's, it's, it's a title that is given to the Messiah, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you through that and so you'll know for yourselves why that is true. This title of the Son of Man is first found in Daniel chapter seven. <coughs> It's a prophetic reference. In that, in that, in that prophetic passage, Daniel chapter 7, we're told that the Son of Man is a title given to the Messiah in regards to, listen, in regards to God's suffering representative of God's people who after he has suffered is then vindicated, the Son of Man. A time of suffering and a time of vindication. And, and this, this son of man described in Daniel chapter 9, I think also in Psalm 110, it speaks about it. It speaks that he will return on the clouds coming in all of his eternal glory to rightly take hold of an eternal throne and a kingdom that will not, will not pass away. Vindicated after his time of suffering. And we know that Jesus would rightfully make claim to this. He just didn't leave that out there for people to assume about him. Jesus rightly made claim to this title before his disciples for the first time while they were at the Last Supper. You can go and look it up. And also, shortly thereafter, when Jesus was arrested and taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus also laid claim to the title of the Son of Man, as referenced in Daniel chapter 7, and all the claims that come along with that, while he was being tried by him. Caiaphas is like, tell me. He's, he, Jesus won't speak. He's like, tell me, are you the Messiah? And listen, in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 62, it says this. It says, again, the high priest asked him, saying, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said this, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And even though no one knows the day nor the hour of Jesus' return, we're told that we can know our master's return is near. Often we're told about we don't know the time, but we can know the season, right? And in Matthew chapter 24, which is a parallel passage of this account that we're reading about here in Luke chapter 12, it tells us that the it tells us that when the rapture of the church and the return of the Messiah is near, it says specifically, Jesus speaking, he says, it will be as it was in the days of Noah. That's key. And so if we consider what it was like in the days of Noah, we can determine what it'll be like before the Son of Man returns. And when we look back to Genesis chapter 6, where the account of Noah and the flood is recorded, what we find there are four parallels between Noah's days and the days that we're now living in, I think that shows us clearly that the Son of Man's return is near. And maybe from my perspective, which is my opinion, you know what opinion's like, it's like, it's overdue, Lord, right? 
But I love it in the book of Revelation that it tells that these things won't come to pass also. And it's, it's like a piece of fruit that's overripe, about ready to just fall off of the tree on its own. That's the kind of the imagery that we're given when we see these things come into place. So, and, and we know this is true because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You know, we think sometimes, Lord, you're delaying. Are you ever coming? You know, that's not the right attitude of the expectant servant. The one is he can come today and I want to live prepared and ready. So let's look at these parallels. And, in the, and, 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 and because the knowledge of these things can, can really help us to discern the times we're living in and encourage us to be prepared and to be ready for our Savior's return. So the first of these four things that we're told about Noah's day is that this, is that the, the, there was a population explosion, Okay. It's in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. And there's a reference there to this saying that it was at a time when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now, now the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were given this command to be fruitful and multiply. That's not the same kind of multiplication when we look at the wordage here in the original language. What we see in this is that you begin to see there was a multiplication effect going on at that time. Or the, there was this population explosion that had taken place. And it has been estimated by biblical mathematicians smarter than me that during Noah's day, partially because of the the long life that people were living at that time, that in Noah's day, that there was about six billion people on the planet Earth. And um, when we look at recent population statistics, we see that it was not until 1857 before the Earth's population was even regrown back to one billion people. And, and that is in part also because we know that the man of life, the age of man after the flood was decreased. God spoke about that, and that's true. We don't, we don't live as long as people did before the flood. And even with modern-day technology today, you know, and, and where we see um, the life expectancy growing, we know that over time that it hasn't been what it was, not even close. So in 1857, records show, uh, statistics show us that the Earth's population reached one billion people. Now, now, with that in mind, keep this, keep this thought where we're going. It was in 1901, only 44 years later, that the Earth's population was multiplied. It doubled to 2 million in 44 years. From the days of Noah until 1857, it took that long to reach 1 billion people. Then in 1901, 44 years later, it doubled to 2 billion. And then by 1960, the Earth's population grew to 3 billion. And ever since then, the Earth's population has been multiplied and skyrocketed from 3 billion to the current um, estimates today of 7.5 billion people. In light of this, I think it's safe to say that like it was in the days of Noah, we are also in the midst of a population explosion where men are multiplying upon the earth. But in addition to this, we know that during Noah's day, that abnormal sexual practices were the norm, okay? As in Genesis chapter 6, it tells us that the sons of God were having sex with the daughters of men. And most scholars believe, most Bible scholars believe that this, is a, or this refers to sexual relations between men and fallen angels, literally demons. Okay, And in regards to the context of what this is being referred to, when you look at it in that passage, it's not speaking about one specific 
uh, sexual, immoral, immoral sexual thing, what we understand from that passage of Scripture when you read it in contract is that that mention of women having sex with demons, it was an, an, an illustrating how, how sexual immorality and how sexual perversion was not only the norm, but that it had risen to a new depth to the point where women were willing to have sex with demons. And, and, and it just speaks to the, 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 um, the, the callousness in that area of the, of, in the lives of humanity at that time. And, and when seeking to compare this to what it is like today, I almost feel like no expounding in regards to, into, into, in regards to sexual morality and perversion is needed as in, in, in the one that, that, how it's going on in our age. You know, why would I even expand on that? It's pretty obvious, Right? Considering that sexual perversion has so deeply saturated our world, our society, that it once again, once again has become readily the normal by the majority of people today. And what I mean by that is sexual morality and sexual perversion is the norm. It's the norm. And, and, and so without going to all the details in, in regards to, you know, well, what kind of sexual perversion, what kind of sexual morality, you know, I, I don't think that's important. It, 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 what I want to point out is clear that this, is clear that sex within the confines of biblical marriage is no longer the norm. That's the more profound statement, I think, rather than listing all the negatives in regards to sexual morality and ungodly things. If we can just go, biblical marriages is defined by God and sex within biblical marriage and the confines that God puts forth for it is no longer the norm. It's the exception, like it was in Noah's day. Now, I studied this all out all week long, but as I'm here speaking about these things and just even hearing it as I'm speaking it to you, I'm getting goosebumps. I'm telling you that right now. And you should be too. Because these things mean something. And the third thing we're told about in regards to what it was like in Noah's day is that, listen, is that the wickedness of man was, was great as every thought and intent of man's heart was on evil continually. Only on evil continually. And this, this kind of great wickedness that is being referred to is more than just a, a great number of wicked acts. Okay, it was like, okay, there was... Three wicked acts, you know, yesterday, and now there's four wicked acts today. That's, that's not the idea behind this. Rather, great wickedness is when wicked and perverted things are not only accepted as a norm, but there's no shame in doing them because they are celebrated. That is something that is good. The Bible talks about in the end days, men will wear their sin upon their chest for all to see because there's no shame in it. That's great wickedness. And this is exactly what, what the world we are now living in is doing because it's become a common practice to call what God has said is wicked and perverted good and to call what God has said is good, wicked, and perverted. You know, we as Christians stand up for, for godly things and, and so in the mantra out there politically and otherwise as morality has been brought into the political scene is, is that we are condemned as Christians because because of standing up for, for, for what is good. That's not good. You don't know what you're talking about. That's not loving. And man is calling what God has called good evil and calling what God has called evil good. And because of this, there is the fourth thing, just like it was in, in, 
today, just like it is today as it was in Noah's days. In that, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, it tells us this. It tells us that in Noah's day, the whole earth was corrupt before God and was filled with violence. It's a cause and effect. Because the earth was corrupt, because there was corruption upon the earth, the earth was filled with violence. And the fact of the matter is violent acts have filled the earth ever since the beginning. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, right? However, in Noah's day, violence filled the earth and there was no longer any fear of punishment. And this is what we're being told in regards to when it says that the whole earth was corrupt before God. Meaning, even those who had been raised up by God to be his, to to execute God, righteousness to execute justice and to deliver punishment for the crimes or violent crimes that, 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 that have take place, um, that that was no longer taking, that was no longer going on. People were no longer concerned about justice because of corruption. And it was not too long ago that when an injustice or a violent crime was committed in our world that the government for the most part sought to serve justice well. Back in the day, not too long ago, when we had the Ten Commandments in the courtrooms. Albeit not perfectly, but for the most part, crimes and crimes of violence were punished not too long ago in a, in a, in a, in a just way, and there was an uncorrupt, for the most part, an uncorrupt system of justice in place. Now, I get it. You have man in there, and, 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 and man's not perfect, so you're going to have a measure of, of fault and corruption overall, but... But it, 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 I don't think, you know, too many years ago you could have looked at the, the, the whole system as a whole and say it's corrupt. I look at our leaders today and I go, it's corrupt on every level. And this is no longer the case. And you know what? I have, I have friends who are police and, and other people who are first responders. And when you talk to them, these guys that are called to enforce the laws, they're extremely frustrated. We have a DA in our own, in our own county our district attorney, well, we got a new one, but the old one, this one's probably the same. I don't know. I, I should be careful. I don't know them that well yet. But the old one who refused to prosecute many, many, many different kinds of crimes. Even when there was, there was all the evidence there and the laws were clear, they would bring it before him and he would not prosecute. That's corruption. And the police department is... And the police officers and the first responders are frustrated, and they'll tell you because our system is corrupt. Justice is not being served. And this is because crime is being punished with minimal retribution, even, even if it is at all. And when a punishment is passed down, here's the other thing that shows a corruption. Our criminals are living more comfortably than law-abiding citizens do. In light of this, I think it's fair to say that the earth is once again corrupt before God as violence is filling this earth we're living in. And maybe even like it was back in Noah's day. I don't know, I wasn't there, but I sometimes look around and I go, Lord, how much worse can it get before you come? So even though we know that the Son of Man is coming back at an hour that we cannot predict, I think we have good reasons to believe that his return is near. Don't you think? Biblical reasons. So like Jesus says here in verses 35 and 36, if you'll look back to the beginning, he says, we should then therefore have our waist girded. Literally what that means in our day is to be dressed for service. 
You know, when I'm mowing the lawn, I wear certain clothes, unless my wife's not around, and then I get yelled at later for getting the dirty because I didn't want to change. You know, when there's, you prepare yourself a certain way. Back in that day, servants would wear robes, and when their master would be coming home, they would gird their robe up so that they could do the work with a belt around their waist so they would be able to move and do what needed to be done. And we're called to gird ourselves, to be prepared, dressed for service, keeping our lamps burning, being like men who are waiting for their master's return. And with this call to action, Jesus gives this example of the master returning from his own wedding and says that the servants were, who were waiting expectantly for their master's return were blessed. He knocks on the door, right? I picture it like we see today. I mean, like He's got his bride in his arms. He's like, you know, maybe he's kicking the door. Let me in. It's late. You know, and, and what if the servants were sleeping? <laughs> what if they weren't attentive? You know? Hang on, honey. Let me set you down. I mean... He would not be happy. <laughs> and with this call to action, Jesus gives us his example. And, and, and when, when the servants are ready and waiting, it says they're blessed. Now, in, G, in Jesus' day, Jewish weddings were held at night, and, and um, a, a, a bridegroom's servants would have to be waiting for that whole time the, through the ceremony, through the party. They would be waiting for their master to come home with his bride and, and not knowing exactly when. And as you can imagine, like I already kind of illustrated, a new husband would, would not want to be wait, kept, keep wait, kept waiting at the door with his bride because of a lazy or an unprepared servant. So in this instance, the servants had to be alert. In this instance, they had to be watching for their master's return and ready to receive and serve their master on whatever his needs were when he came home. But listen, we can all follow that pretty well, and we get that. But in this account, man, there's this, this incredibly unexpected and remarkable thing that we're told in this example. And it is this. It is that the expectant servants, according to verse 36, were blessed by their master's return because when the master came home with his bride, the master was the one to gird himself and began to serve his servants. And, and in no instance would we ever go, oh yeah, that would what should happen. And because Jesus, listen, and because Jesus is using this example to illustrate the son of man's return, his return, his unexpected return, what we're being told here is that when Jesus returns, those who have lived in a state of constant readiness for his return will be seated at his table and we will be served by him. feel a little bit like when I hear that maybe like Peter when when they were sitting at the table at the last supper and Jesus got up to wash his disciples feet and Peter said no, you ain't washing my feet are you kidding me you're the master you're the Lord you're God you're the savior I don't know about you, but to think that Jesus, our King, our Savior, our Lord, our Master, is going to one day when he comes home, when he comes to take us home, is then going to sit us down at his table and he's going to serve us as a reward for our faithfulness is, 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 is an incredibly mind-blowing and humbling thing to think and to consider. And I think there's no way to actually describe how blessed we will truly be when Jesus returns for us. And in verse 41, we're told that upon hearing these words, 
of Jesus, Peter then spoke up and he asked Jesus this question. Read with me. It says, then Peter said to him, Lord, do you, do you speak this parable to us only or to all people? And, and you know, I don't know. I don't want to read into too much what Peter was getting at. You know, there's this blessing, this amazing thing, this call. And, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe Peter was like, yeah, that's probably just for us. <laughs> but is it for us, Lord, or is it for all people? And so the Lord said in verse 42, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? So another question with a question. And then the answer, blessed is the servant that... That blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and he will cut him in two and appoint him with his portion, appoint his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed these things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For every one to whom is given, from him much will be required. And to whom who has been committed of him, they will ask the more. And of course, this is speaking about accountability to the things we've been called to. But in light of this, in light of Jesus' answer, as we read here, it's clear that he was speaking the message about his return and need to be watching for it to everyone saying this, saying that all should be like a faithful and wise steward. Who? All. Again, goes back to this. God's not exclusively come for, for just a few people. He's come. For God so loved the whole world that he sent his only begotten son. And this message of Jesus' return is something that all should know about. But just in case we get the idea that watching and waiting are all that he requires, Jesus adds this parable after answering this question in order to encourage us. And he's encouraging us to do the work that he has called us to do when he comes, to be doing the work that he's called us to do when he comes. And the Bible makes it clear in passages like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. This is really cool when you begin to think about the, the work of a servant of God that we've been called to do especially in light of knowing that he is coming and could be coming soon. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us that God who saved us through his son Jesus Christ has prepared and even appointed good works for us to do, and he expects us to faithfully walk, be walking in them when he returns. He's prepared and appointed. And because God has created us, it tells us also that he's created us for good works, first of all, and has equipped us through his word for every good work and then also empowers us with the Holy Spirit for good works, we really should see that we have no reason or no excuse for why we would not be about the good works when he returns. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't have everything that I needed to be doing it. There's, there's no excuses. God has appointed them. He's prepared them. He equips us. He empowers us. He calls us. And he says, it's our job to walk in them. 
So no excuse for re- or reasons for why we would not be about his good works when he returns. So our responsibility then is this. Our responsibility is then to be faithful. And faithfulness, guys, is what God wants. Faithfulness is what we're being called to here. The Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and he says this. He says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But it's clear from this parable that one of the reasons for why we as God's servants would become unfaithful is because we start to think that our master's return is not near. And according to what Jesus said in verse 4 to 5, look there, this kind of thinking not only affects our faithfulness to the work that we've been called to do, it also negatively affects the way we live our lives and the way that we treat other people. Do you see that in verse 45? And this is because, listen, you've heard me say it before, but it's brought up again, this principle illustrated in this, this message that the Lord's given us. And this is because being in right relationship with one another and living godly lives is dependent on us being in right relationship with the Lord. Bottom line. It's dependent on us living in right relationship with the Lord. You've, said it, you've heard it said, you know, the cross is exampled in that relationship. First it's like this to God, and then it can be like this to others. And the motive, and the motive listen, the motive for living a Christian life and the motive for our Christian service must be rooted in this desire to please the Lord and to be found faithful at his return. What is your motive? So if we stop looking for him, you know what will happen? We'll stop loving his people. If there's unlove in our heart towards one another and towards people in this world, maybe it's because we've stopped looking for his return. Maybe it's because we've not been living expectantly for it. Also, we will stop living for him, and we will return in that instant, in that moment, to living for self. And Jesus makes it clear in verses 46 through 48 as he goes on that in that instance, there will be a price to pay. There will be a price to pay for those who are not concerned about Jesus' return. And the person who's spoken, just so we get clarity, the person spoken of in verse 46 is is the one who is not looking for Jesus' return is the unbeliever, Okay? They don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe he's coming back. He's the unbeliever. They're not looking for his return. And the reality of an eternal death we've found for everyone who has not put their faith in Jesus. And that's why they need to know he's coming back. The Bible tells us there's a day coming, right, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And for the servants found in verse 47, those, listen, those who knew of their master's will, meaning a person who has put their faith in Jesus. You know, if we, we're, it, through belief we come to know our master and we come to know our master's will, right? So, so in verse 47, the one who knew his master's will, meaning the one who has put their faith in Jesus and was still yet an unfaithful and unprepared servant or unprepared for Jesus, it says that that person is gonna experience some kind of eternal loss. 
And, and Jesus gives us an illustration there. And so when Jesus speaks here in verses 47 and 48 about the master servants being beaten with stripes in accordance to the measure of the offense, we should realize, first of all, that Jesus is stating a general principle in that, in that we're told that in regards to stewardship, that the more that we've been given from God, the greater accountability that we will have before God. And like I talked about last week, we've, been, we've all been given much. We've been given much. And there is coming a day that when we as faithful servants and good stewards over what God has given us, that we will be called to give an account. And when we read here about being beaten with stripes, I think we have to conclude ultimately that this is a figurative illustration because the Bible teaches us that that every ounce of punishment that we deserve was taken on by Jesus on our behalf. And, 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 And when the fullness of God was poured out on him at the cross. So there's no longer any wrath, there's no longer any punishment stored up for us. And according to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, this is, this is further illustrated when it says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, when we look at scriptures like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, which tells us about a potential eternal loss that we could suffer as a result of being unfaithful and unprepared servant, we can see that Jesus was, must have been must have been referring to the rewards and the treasures that are being stored up in heaven as a result of our works that are being done while we're here on this earth, right? Store up our treasures where? In heaven. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you can go and read it on your own. It tells us that when our works are tried by God's holy fire, when we give an account, then that what was done apart from God's will, as mentioned here in the text, and apart from the foundation of Jesus Christ, it's going to be burned up. It's like this, and we're going to suffer lofts. We're going to get to heaven, and, and, this, and this is probably how my pile is going to be. I get to heaven, and you see, there's going to be like, Lord's going to be, there's going to be a pile there. I'm going to be like, I'm like, what's that? He's all, he's all, that's your, that's your treasures and your rewards that you stored up while you were here on this earth. And then he's going to go, he's going to go, let's test it. And he's going to apply his holy fire to it, and it's going to go, and it says that which is wood, hay, and stubble is going to be burned up. And that that was done in accordance to God's will with this servant heart of looking to honor him is what's going to be left. And, and in my mind, I hope it's not this way, but in my mind, I'm, I'm going to look at a pile of ashes and maybe this is one or two things. Um, we'll be grateful. We won't be. We'll be glad. We, we'll be glad we just got to heaven. I get that. But I want. I want a pile of treasures. The Bible says part of what we're going to do with that is we're going to take those crowns, those rewards that we're going to. We're going to be casting them back at Jesus' feet as an act of worship and an act of honor. But it's going to be. We are going to be held accountable. And that should motivate us in this life to live expectantly, to be serving in accordance to God's will. But understand that, that we will be held accountable, this, 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 this understanding that we're going to be held accountable, it helps us to remain faithful to our Lord, listen, even when it's difficult to do. And that's what Jesus goes on to point out in, in the following verses. Listen, he says, I came, I came to set fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, speaking of, of his own suffering on the cross and death and resurrection. 
And he says, how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father and mother and against daughter and daughter against mother and and mother-in-law, which might not be too bad, against her (laughs) daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Just kidding. If, if, if Doug and Pam and Claire want to come back up, we're going to end with this. Guys, so listen, what we're being told in these last verses is as we wait, are we waiting? Are we watching as we watch, as we work? Are we working? As we wait, as we watch, as we work, Jesus is saying, you're not going to have an easy time. Why? Because we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. That means, as Paul says, that we're strangers in a strange land, enemies in enemy, or aliens in an enemy territory. And and these images that Jesus used to illustrate this fire, baptism, division, speak of opposition, and they speak of conflict, the conflict that we are and will face when we're living and serving in accordance to God's will. And this assurance, listen, this assurance and knowledge of Jesus' return, as he, as he speaks about that here, in light of this, in context of this, it should encourage us to live and serve as faithful servants. Should it not? It should cause us to purpose in our hearts to live for eternal, the eternal, even if no one else is willing to go with us. Because there's going to be divisions. There's going to be times when you're alone. So we choose to live soberly. So we choose to to wait expectantly for our Lord and Savior's return. As Paul says, hopefully pressing towards the goal of the prize of the upward call in God and Jesus Christ. And if today is the day of Jesus' return, may our hearts be prepared and may we cry out, Maranatha, our Lord is coming. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Will you stand? We'll worship the Lord. Father, thank you, God, for this time together. Thank you for these reminders, Lord, that put a smile on our face and, and, and a step, uh, a, a jump in our step and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, a gladness in our heart. Lord, but may it also motivate us and move us, Lord, to take your return seriously, to look at the lives that we're living, to evaluate them, God, to allow you to burn away the chaff now in this life, Lord, so that there's no loss suffered in the life to come. God, may we be found to be faithful servants at your return. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you that there will be people up front available to pray for you, pray with you at the end of this song. So let's worship God.